Tonight we're reading Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may come from there to us. And he said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you have a Bible and would like to follow along, please go to Luke 16, the text we just read. Luke 16 is where we'll be. Can everybody hear me? Yes? Is that good? Good. This passage is one that sticks out in my mind uh, growing up. I've told you before, my grandfather uh, was a pastor, and I remember him preaching on this text, and there was always uh, actually a styrofoam cup of water on the pulpit whenever he preached. And I remember him preaching this text, and as he's illustrating the text, he dips his finger into that water, and he holds it up for one drop to come down illustrating this request that the rich man has uh, of Abraham and Lazarus. And that just stands out in my mind so much, and I think about it every time. I thought about it all week long. And for me, growing up, this text was very foundational, but it's one of those that I think is very important for us to understand really the nature of hell. And you may be uh, like the average person. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of hell. Uh, and if so, good for you. Uh, but it is a hot topic today. And people ask all the time. You like that? Okay, I actually didn't mean to that, to be honest with you. But I'm glad I told a joke people laughed, you know? Even if you do it by accident. Anyway, um, it, it is a topic of interest today. Uh, and uh, people will ask a lot, you know, you know being, a, being a pastor, people will say, well, do you believe in judgment? Do you believe in a God of judgment? Uh, you know, do you believe that, how can you have a loving God, right? And then you have this 
picture of judgment and how can a loving God really judge people? And I think a lot of times uh, we hear questions like that and they can stump people if you want just, you know, kind of a simple answer. Uh, But these are things that have to be thought through. And not only do you have to think through the question that's being asked, you got to think through the implications of the answers that you give to these questions uh, as well. Now, if I'm being really honest, uh, you know, I, I wish, and I've said this before, I wish I could be a universalist. You know, wouldn't that be great? You know, that one day, you know, everybody is ultimately going to make their way to heaven. And one day, you know, uh, that everybody will be saved. I mean, it just sounds so wonderful. Uh, There's major problems with that. Uh, there's major problems with the fact that, you know, one day God will just override everybody's will, you know, and it deny their own choice. And, you know, there, there's all kind of issues with that, both biblically and when it comes to just simple logic as well. But the nature of hell, as we see revealed in Scripture, is something that's very real and it's something we should take serious. And so the text opens up in verse 19. And it describes that there is a rich man. He's clothed in purple. That's helping you understand his status in society. He has, you know, a lot of money. He wears fine linens. He feasts every single day. And that's just conveying this image of the kind of lifestyle that this rich man lives. But there's also someone at his gate. And this person, in one of the most important words in verse 20, is the word named. This person is named Lazarus, and he's covered in sores, the total opposite of the rich man. He's covered in sores. We even get this description of the dogs coming and licking his sores. And then we see um, that both of them die. Both the poor man, Lazarus, dies, and then also the rich man dies. And we see that there's a destination for both of them, that Lazarus goes to Abraham's side, interesting language being used there. And then the rich man, he goes to Hades. And those the text says that being in torment, and then the text goes on, actually the text does not say he's being tormented. There's a difference there. Because a lot of times we have this idea of that hell is this place where demons are constantly tormenting us. But I think what we'll see is that something else is going on here. Now when it comes to people, And whenever we think about people in life, we tend to think in terms of there are good people and there are bad people. And that's a complete, I mean, that's that's completely subjective on our part. We think about people in terms of the, um, the quality of their life as we know it or the quality of person they are as we see it. Or we think about people in terms of the quantity of good things that they do for others or good things they do for society. Again, those things that we see. But all of that, again, is completely subjective. And whenever it comes to the topic of heaven and hell and where you go, that idea of being a good person or a bad person is really not a part of that conversation when it comes to the Bible. But notice what is very clear, even in the title of this parable. Notice that one of the people in the parable is named and one is not. That is very important to understand what's going on here and again to understand the nature of hell. Notice that the poor man is named. So he has this dignity that comes from his identity. Very important. But then you have the rich man. Notice there's not this dignity that comes from this identity that he's known, that his name is named, actually. Instead, there's only a description of him based off his possessions, things that he has. Now this, I think, is very challenging for our culture today. Uh, Because we live in the type of culture where we say we need to find and define ourselves. 
We need to find ourselves. People use that all the time. And we need to define ourselves. We live in this culture where we get to define our own values. Or, as we put it, you need to define your truth, right? You need to go find out what is true for you, and then you get to define that. And here's the thing. When you define your truth, nobody, nobody can say anything about it because it's your truth. It's very personal. It's a part of who you are. This is what is true for you. And, and when, it, when I say nobody can say anything about it, nobody can refute your truth, it means not even God can. In fact, I was having this conversation this week. <clears throat> for the first time, sociologists talk about this, not just theologians. For the first time in human history, we have a generation of people in the West in which truth is found outside of us. When you look at the generations that are coming up, a lot of times we look at them and they look like aliens, right? We're like, we don't understand how they think. Well, for the first time in human history, the quest for truth is found on the inside. It's not something that we go and look out for or look for on the outside. In the past, there's always been a religion or something in which we looked to and then we evaluated that religion to determine whether or not it was true or not, whether or not it was coherent or not, all those things. Um, and it was always, or we looked to the state, like Rome. But, but the thing in which held truth was always outside of us. That is not the case anymore. Now people are on the quest for truth and they're looking for it on the inside of them. And that's why this passage is so challenging for us today, I think. Now, I think it's challenging when it comes to this idea of truth, because whenever we go on a, tw uh, a quest for understanding truth and claiming our truth for ourselves, what we take with that is the power of naming. And if you look in Scripture, the power of naming is very, very important. We see God name people or change people's names throughout Scripture to give them, again, a, a God-centered identity. We see that over and over. We see God give Adam the power of naming whenever he creates the world. And so whenever we take on this idea that we can have a truth, that we can define ourselves, we're actually taking on the power. We're claiming we have the power to then name things. And so we live in a culture in which not only can we define our values and name them, we can redefine our biology. We can redefine our uh, family of origin. We can redefine even our own species, if you haven't seen the news lately. Or we can redefine and simply change our name and sometimes do it excessively. Now, there are really good reasons why you would maybe want to change your name. Sure, my name has been changed in my lifetime, the first 12 years of my life. As you know, I, I grew up as Christopher Anthony Kipling Richards. I have all those names because my mother tried to please every uncle that I had. So, and then I was adopted at age 12, became Christopher Anthony Kipling Montgomery, right? There are good reasons why you would want to change your name, absolutely, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking on this power, they're claiming you have the power to rename all the things that make up you and your identity. That's something completely different. To say that you have the power to rename and redefine things that are actually sacred. Things that are sacred in our life are things that are God-given. That's what makes them sacred. And we are taking that power on ourselves. But notice, notice, this parable is about the rich man and Lazarus. 
One of them has a name. Both die. There's one death, but two locations. Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. Interesting language. Notice he didn't say heaven, although that's actually what it means to go to Abraham's side. But he says Abraham's side. Who was the first person in the Bible to have their name changed by God? Abraham. That's right. The rich man goes to Hades, which means the place of death, right? And right here, again, we see something about the nature of hell. The rich man is described, again, only, the description of him is only by what he had in this life. And what that tells us is that hell, then, is the place where we receive our earthly rewards and status. That's a part of hell, where we get our earthly rewards and status. That's what carries us in, and that's the only thing we can carry in. Another way to put it is our eternal destination uh, is where our identity is verified and solidified, we will see. But our eternal destination is where our identity is verified, which should make us ask the question then, who or what are we building our identity on? And again, some people reduce religion down to, you know, good things and bad things. Good people do good things and bad people do bad things. Uh, It's a little more complicated than that because religion is about identity. It's not just about what you do and what you don't do. Just go read Romans 7 where Paul is having that back and forth. And he's like, I know I shouldn't do these things. I find myself doing those things. There's things I want to do and I don't do those things. You know, we all have that struggle on the inside. So it's not purely just about doing the right things all the time and doing bad things all the time. It's about our identity. And when it comes to identity, the reason why this is important is because uh, our eternal destination is based on identity, which means God does not send anyone to hell. God does not send anyone to hell. Entrance into heaven is when we say, God, your will be done. Entrance into hell is when God says to us, your will be done. We get caught up in this idea that God is sending people these places. No, it's built on our identity. What is our identity built on? Because that's where we're naturally going to go. You could say supernaturally. So if you're talking about hell, we have to understand that hell is where we get what we want. Ultimately, hell is where we get what we want. Want. It's, it's the, the, the things that we have built our life on. That, those are the things that we truly want. That is what hell is all about. Or as Dr. Keller put it this way, hell is where, hell is your freely chosen identity going on forever. Your freely chosen identity going on forever. I've said it before, I think that hell is when God leaves you alone. When he says, have it your way, have it your way. And we read those scary passages in scripture where it says that God has turned people over to their own evil desires. He's just saying, have it your way. But notice, Lazarus had a name. Lazarus had a name. He had an identity that was not grounded in his earthly possessions. He had a name. And what does his name mean? Well, in Greek, it means God has helped. In Hebrew, same thing. God is my help. 
And I think the name Lazarus here is used intentionally, obviously. It's Jesus telling the parable. What he's conveying to us is that those people whose identity are found in God, they are the people who say that God has helped me. God has helped me do something I could not do for myself. And that thing that I could not do for myself is I could not not build my own identity the way I wanted to, but God has intervened. And now I want my identity built on Him, not just my selfish ambition. And so to understand the nature of hell, I think it's very clear that Lazarus had a name. He had an identity that was not just built on things that you get in this world, like the rich man. Notice that also that the rich man, he's in Hades, he's in torment. And then the text tells us that he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham. And he saw Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus. You notice that? Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. (laughs) Okay. There's a lot here. Uh, I'll start with this. The nature of hell, I told you it's built on your identity. The nature of hell is the place that magnifies your own evil. It magnifies your selfishness. You can see it, right? What is Lazarus saying? He's saying, come and cool my tongue. But notice what he's doing. He's in hell. He's in Hades. He's in the place of death. And he's still giving orders. There's something about Lazarus that thinks, even though he's in the state that he is in, and even though Lazarus is in the state that he is in, there's something that he still believes his status is greater than that of Lazarus. And he still thinks he can order him around. He says, I'm in anguish in these flames. And when we see, when you read about the uh, read in the Bible about the uh, hell and the nature of hell, it's always this image of fire. And we get caught up in a lot of that. And, you know, throughout uh, medieval periods, there are, you know, paintings about that. And, and many times we get fixated on the fire and we never ask the question, what does the fire mean? So a lot of times we just think, oh, well, hell's a place where things are burning all the time. Well, maybe so, maybe so. But the fire is actually pointing to something worse than just flames because this image of fire in hell that we see it is where we are consumed completely by our own self-destruction totally void of God I don't know what scares you or not but the idea of not being in God's presence at least in some measure is terrifying every one of us every one of us Do not, we have no idea what it's like to not be in God's presence. But hell is that place where God is not. And to be in that place totally devoid of God's presence in any way. Yes, there's God's manifest presence, absolutely. But but God is also omnipresent on the planet, right? And so to be in that place where His presence is nowhere at all, to be totally void of God's presence, that is when we totally turn in on ourselves and we are consumed by our own selfishness because now there's nothing to hold us back, nothing to hold us back. And that's what the rich man is in this moment. He's so consumed by his own selfishness. He is literally in hell and he's still giving orders and he's going to give another one here in a minute. But notice that he cries out for mercy. 
Mercy is not giving somebody something they do deserve. Notice what the rich man is not doing. The rich man is not arguing that he does not deserve to be in hell. He also, uh, he, he does not only not necessarily want to get out, he just wants the pain to be reduced a little bit so that it's a little bit more bearable. And he actually gives no indication again that he wants to leave. And still, instead, he still thinks that he's in charge because that's hell. Hell is where we get what we want. We completely turn in on ourselves and we become the worst version of ourselves. We become, the part of our, we become that part of ourselves where there is no conscience whatsoever of that maybe we should look out for someone else. Maybe we should consider someone else. Instead, hell is the place where we completely turn in on ourselves. But the difference is in hell, our power, hungry hearts cannot hurt anyone else. But it only hurts us. You see what the rich man is talking about? He's talking about himself, what he wants. And then the conversation goes on. After he has this moment where we see that he's not trying to get out. In fact, he's actually just trying to get Lazarus in. Do you notice that? He's not trying to get out of hell. He just wants Lazarus to come down where he is and cool his tongue. He's trying to get Lazarus in, which is a really important point because, you know, People who are self-absorbed always want to bring you into their crazy, right? And it's all about him, so he wants Lazarus to come in, and, but Abraham replies and says, child, notice that. Notice that Abraham calls him child. Even though he's in this state, even though he deserves hell and he's in hell, Abraham still talks to him in a tender voice. In a tender voice. He pities him. He says, child, remember Remember that in your lifetime, you received good things. But Lazarus, no. He received bad things. But now, now he is comforted here. And now you are in anguish. Notice he says, he points out the fact that the good things that Lazarus had in his life, those were the things that he built his identity on and those were the things that ultimately sent him to hell. He did it to himself. And so many times we chase after the good life, however we want to define the good life. But we have to remember that good things can become evil things in our life. Good things can become, when they become the things that wake us up in the morning, that drive us, then even good things can become those things in which we build our identity on. So we start rejoicing more in the blessings of God instead of the God who blesses us. And that is when that cycle starts. The inward selfish cycle where we have to feed it for more and more. We talk about consumerism all the time. Consumerism is just that constant feeding of our own sin nature. Constantly feeding ourselves because we're becoming more and more self-absorbed just like the rich man here. Abraham says no, and then he says in verse 26, and besides all this, between us there's this great chasm that has been fixed. It has been fixed. There is no travel back and forth, which tells us that the nature of heaven and hell is fixed in eternity as well. It also means that we are actually making permanent decisions that affect our eternal identity now. 
We're making eternal decisions now. Those decisions that have to do with who or what are we building our life on, those are going to matter in eternity. And again, our identity that we play with so much in this culture and we try to change and tweak so much in this culture, we have to remember our identity is something that is sacred. Again, sacred means God-given. But notice the text goes on in verse 27. So the rich man says to him, he says, Then I beg you, Father, Father Abraham, to send him, send Lazarus. So now he's trying to give Lazarus orders again. And he's trying to get Abraham to give Lazarus orders this time. Notice that. But it's still about him. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham, but, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And notice what Abraham says. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham tells the rich man, he says, listen, if they will not listen to God's word, then the miracle of all miracles is not going to convince them. And you say, why is that? I mean, surely if someone you know, came back to life, then everybody would believe. Well, Jesus did. And does everybody believe? No. No. In fact, one-third of the world says, thank you, Jesus. One-third of the world says, no, thank you, Jesus. And one-third of the world says, who is Jesus? Right? But not everybody because he has been raised from the dead, believes. And Abraham says, no, he has Moses and the prophets. Just because someone rises from the dead does not mean that they're going to believe. And you say, why? Well, miracles tend to instill fear, not love. They tend to instill fear, but not love. And whenever he says, you go to Moses and the prophets, think about Jesus' resurrection, right? He's resurrected from the dead. He's on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to the disciples. What does he talk to them about? Moses and the prophets. Why? Well, why is the answer. What happened was resurrection from the dead. But Moses and the prophets tell you why it happened and why it had to happen. And so what Abraham is saying to the rich man, he says, a miracle is not going to convince your brothers. But when they understand why, when they understand the why behind the what, that's when they're truly convinced. When they're truly convinced. And notice a part of the rich man's complaint here. Part of his complaint to Abraham is, Abraham, I didn't know enough information. That's a part of his complaint. I did not know enough information. I didn't know enough then about Moses and the prophets. You know, that excuse never works, does it? It, it never works. Here, here's, here's, I'll put it this way. One of the things that, I, that gets said to me more than anything else as a pastor is people will say, I don't know the Bible as much as I should. I hear it all the time. In one sense, that's true. In one sense, there's always more to learn. Yes, absolutely. But when people say, I don't know the Bible as well as I should, what I really want to say back to you, because I love you, is that's your fault. Because when people say, I don't know the Bible as much as I should, 
They can sing songs from memory like nobody's business. And they can quote events in history like nobody's business. And they can tell me sports stats from decades ago about college football like nobody's business. And they can quote from movies and television shows like crazy. It's all in their mind. But we say, but I don't know the Bible as well as I should. And it's simply your fault. And so when the rich man says, you know, they need my brothers, my father's house, they they need more information because if I'd have known what I know now, I might not be down here. And Abraham says, no, it's not how it works. You chose, rich man, what to build your identity on. You chose, rich man, to know the different shades of purple that you would wear in fine linen. You chose to spend more time picking out fine linen than reading Moses and the prophets. You chose to throw big parties. You chose the guest list. You spent more time on cleaning your house or having it clean and bossing the servants around. You spent more time on these things than reading Moses and the prophets. So no, that's not an excuse. And for the church today, especially the good southern church like us, we have to be careful that we're not throwing that around as an excuse. It's one thing to say it aspirationally and say, I'm going to learn more. It's a whole other thing to walk around in willful ignorance, hoping that one day God will just overlook it when he's already spoken and he wants us to know why he has done what he has done, not just what he has done in human history. Let me move on one last point. I'm over my time. We've got to have communion. It is this. Why is the doctrine of hell important today? People will say it's outdated. Well, I, I get it. I don't really know anybody who jumps up and down at the idea of judgment right? If you do, you're probably strange. But the doctrine of hell is very important. And it's very important for two reasons. Justice and peace. Justice and peace. Future justice that one day God will make all things right and present peace. That I can have peace now because of the future justice that's going to happen at the throne, at the judgment. One of the books that I had to read for school, uh, one of the writers, was Mirzov Wolf, who is taught at, he's taught at Fuller, he's now at Yale. He's Croatian, and, um, you know, he grew up with the wars that were happening over there. And his argument is this, and I, I tend to agree. He says, if you don't have a God who will one day judge evil in the world, then what you're going to do is you're just going to take justice into your own hands. You're just going to take justice into your own hands. And what that means is instead of having a present peace, that peace that surpasses understanding, instead of having present peace because you have future trust that one day God will make it right, You'll just say, I have to get justice now. And that's how we get in a vicious cycle of evil in the world. 
And so when people say, why is a passage like this important? Oh, it's important. Because it reminds us as believers that one day, every wrong that has been committed, God will make right. And if we will trust Him with that in the moment, and trust in His just justice, if we will trust that, then we can live with a peace that nobody else can claim. And when our identity is built on Him, that peace can be present because that trust is present. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing passage. And there's so much here that we couldn't talk about tonight. Uh, But Lord, I pray that the takeaway would be that we would seek to build our identity on you and you alone. And what, there's no better reminder than to come to this place of holy communion. So as we take, would we identify with you more than anything else this world can give us? In Jesus' name, amen.